0: I didn't grow up visiting national parks. I grew up in Karachi. It's a big-ass city in Pakistan, the biggest in the country. Then, when I'm 11, I moved to a big-ass city in California called Los Angeles. You might have heard of it. I don't even hear about the national parks until I'm in my 20s. And of course, I find out about them in the most Misha way possible. A silent meditation retreat right outside of Joshua Tree National Park. I'm the kind of person who, when I decide I'm into something, I go all in. So one second, I'm finding out about the national parks at the ripe old age of 21, and the next second, I'm into national parks. I read about them, follow all the individual Instagram park accounts. I even end up watching a 12-hour documentary about them.
1: President Lincoln signed the Yosemite Valley Grant Act.
0: A documentary many people would say is the most boring thing they've never even
1: watched. the way for the establishment of Yosemite as a national park in 18- But
0: I, Misha Youssef, I am riveted by it, bawling my eyes out, feeling as patriotic as I do when watching Simone Biles land her signature move. I watch and read everything I can find. And I decide I have to go see the national parks, these American parks, for myself. I must follow in the footsteps of Teddy Roosevelt, John Muir, Stephen Mather. I must see America. Really experience it. I'm gonna hike all the hikes, Camp, gaze up at the stars, hang out with the bison and the wolves and the bears. Okay, maybe not the bears. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my Look God, I get it? 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 <laughs> I'll touch the red rocks, feel the mist from the waterfalls oh, wow. bathe in the cold streams. Okay, that was the little sour I needed. So that's what I do. Because these are America's parks. They're supposed to be my parks. Our inheritance. For everyone.
1: America's National Parks. The best idea we ever heard.
0: But wait a minute, am I really supposed to believe that? I mean, it's 2021. We've lived through some, you know, you were there. In the last few years, if I've learned anything, it's that America sometimes has trouble with honesty. Is the story of America's parks that I know, true, complete, or am I buying into a whitewash version? I wanna know the truth about America's best idea.
2: Misha, nice to meet you. Yeah,
0: hi. Nice to meet you too. I'm Misha.
2: My name is Cassius Kent. Welcome to the Two Medicine Valley.
0: You're listening to Hello Nature by REI Co op Studios, a new story of America's parks. Brought to you by Subaru. I'm your host, Misha Youssef. Oh my gosh. Hello, hello. This is Misha Youssef, your host. Welcome to Hello Nature. It's really like a hello, fuck you nature. (laughs) I'm tired already. Here's the problem. I'm not a backpacker, a rock climber, a big car camper. I'm not even super hikey. Not hikey, because I'm very hikey. You know, I don't hike a lot or do really hard hikes. The longest one I'd done before this trip was a day hike. So I have a lot to learn. I call my outdoorsy friend, Elizabeth Nakano, for advice. Hey, I'm Elizabeth. Yeah, when Misha called saying that she wanted to try and go on this trip, I was like, okay, do you think this is a good idea? And she gives me a list of what I need to get. And she will not stop talking to me about poop shovels. So anyway, she tells me to check out a store called Recreational Equipment Incorporated Co-op, aka REI.
2: Hey there, how's it going? I'm Scott. Welcome to REI.
0: And Scott teaches me about the 10 essentials for camping. Navigation.
2: Some people may not know this, your phone actually has a compass in it. Oh, whoa,
0: did you know this? Headlamp. Sun protection. Fire.
2: Talk about fire.
0: Ooh, yes.
2: Oh, are you a pyro?
0: First aid, shelter, knife. You're at the fun stuff right now. Yeah, knives. Knives. Extra water, (laughs) extra clothes, extra food. And I got to say, REI has some pretty extravagant freeze-dried food options. Classic spaghetti with meat sauce, pasta primavera. Chicken and dumplings, (laughs) beef stew. Like, forget national parks. Why don't I just go to space? Oh, wait. I'm not rich like Jeff Bezos. Once I have my gear, I assemble a team to help document the trip, this experience. And I pick pros, like Elizabeth and Jonathan.
2: Hey, yeah, this is Jonathan. Um,
0: Because if I'm going to be driving all through the country, a white guy is definitely going to come in handy.
2: I don't know. Misha just asked me to do this, and I was like, "Mm, yeah, I've camped a lot when I was a kid, and... Honestly, I needed the money, so I said, sure.
0: Hey, it's Francesca. And Francesca Diaz, because, well, because she's amazing. I've only gone camping once in my life, and it was because I got stung by a bee five times on my face. So whoever said that nature was the great outdoors definitely did not experience that. I started with Yosemite because, depending on who you ask, it was the first national park. Also, it's up north in California, so close to home. And we are very close to Cherry Valley. And that's the story behind how I end up here with Jonathan. In the dark, exhausted from driving for nine hours, trying to find our campsite. What an adventure. By the time we get to the campsite, it's 1156 PM. Camping 101, am I right? Always set up your tent in the dark, especially if it's your first time ever pitching a tent by yourself. Jonathan, you gotta come see my house. (laughs) I did such a good job. It's so organized in here. It's day one in Yosemite. It's freezing and silent. All right. I am. Getting up. That's me after a great sleep on my sleeping pad that never inflated. Thanks a lot, Scott.
1: Getting out
0: of my tent. There are a lot of uh, tall pines. No bears came last night to visit us. Really thought they would. It's still amazing to me how quiet and how simple the world becomes once we leave the city. Which oatmeal would you want? Would you want the apple cinnamon, maple and brown sugar, cinnamon and spice?
1: Like that family camp I was telling you about? Mm-hmm. The only time anyone ever saw bears were at night.
0: And after that delicious breakfast of instant oatmeal and watery coffee, thanks, Jonathan, we hit the road again. I'm about to finally see Yosemite Valley. There are a few things that terrify me about going out into nature. The first, bears. The second, injuring myself. I've just recovered from a knee surgery and I am not about to get sidelined again. The third, driving. Sometimes I get panic attacks driving. It started in the pandemic, I know, I know. Going on a road trip, not an intuitive move. I'm kind of freaked out that it could happen again. And fourth, I'm a brown person and a brown person traveling through America, not always easy. After a couple hours of driving, we finally make it to an entrance station at the park. go into Yosemite Valley to get to like a visitor center. I think we're Apparently like we aren't like in Yosemite yet but we play it cool. And to get to Yosemite Valley, do we have to... We go in and go back out. And that big line you saw, that's to go into the valley. Oh, we didn't even see We didn't see, see the big line. Turns out we actually made a wrong turn and have ended up in a remote corner of Yosemite Park called Hetch Hetchy. Okay. We own our mistake and explore a bit. Yeah, let's just go, like, see, let's drive a little bit and, like, we can just, um, let me look at the map. It's gorgeous. Oh my god! Wait, can we not? We could go down here. There's a huge dam and a pristine lake. Every year, the Hetch Hetchy water and power system produces 1.7 billion kilowatt A rock tunnel. Hello, nature. Even though we're completely off track, off trail, as nature people would say, I'm kind of curious about Hetch Hetchy. This used to be John Muir's favorite place.
1: The deepest sections of the famous canyons of which the Yosemite Valley... Hetch Hetchy Valley, and many smaller ones are wider portions, with level park-like floors and walls of immense height and grandeur of sculpture.
0: The first time he visited Yosemite was 1868. And listen to how poetically and lovingly he writes about Yosemite.
1: The noblest forests, the loftiest granite domes, the deepest ice-sculptured canyons, the brightest crystalline pavements, and snowy mountains soaring into the sky.
0: This is huge at the time. These writings sway the hearts and minds of Americans to take action, to protect the lands that we now call national parks. John Muir literally helps make Yosemite a federally protected national park. The beauty and ecological importance of the land before you was recognized by Congress in 1890. In Hachachi, there are little signs everywhere. Signs about the dam, the reservoir, signs about the rocks, and signs about indigenous people, the people whose land we are walking on. My ancestors lived here for generations. Central Miwok, Southern Sierra Miwok, and Mono Lake Paiute people. It's pronounced Paiute, young Misha. Made mountain places like this their homes, using the higher mountains for trade routes and summer encampment. We have lived on the land as hunters and gatherers and traditional skills. I wish the navigation would come back to life. We're back on the road, and I start to get anxious. Are we gonna reach Yosemite Valley at all? And just like my insides, the road is going up and down, up and down, so windy. And service is spotty, so our navigation is cutting in and out.
2: Turn right, no wait. Turn left. Redirected.
0: That familiar sinking feeling begins. Any minute I'm gonna have a panic attack. You made a big, big mistake, Misha Youssef. ha 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 ha. I know this can go one of two different ways. And then I remember a game, a road trip game. The name of the game is snaps. Francesca taught it to me before I handed out on the road. Here's what you need to know. You think of a name, the other person tries to guess it. You have to spell out the word using a code. For consonants, use a sentence. Now, the first letter of that sentence is the letter of your word. For vowels, use snaps. One snap for A, two snaps for E, three snaps for I, and so on and so on. The guesser puts the word together by listening to the sentences and counting the snaps. Okay, it's pretty confusing, but basically there are words and snaps, and most importantly, the road in front of me stabilizes. Francesca, you are an angel. I think about the word that I want Jonathan to guess. It was a word I learned before I came to the park. A word that, funny enough, has everything to do with roads leading into Yosemite National Park. Do you want to try and guess the word? The name of the game is snaps. Want to know who built the roads leading into Yosemite? A. Want to know what life was like for them? A-E-I-O. Not everyone does, unfortunately. A. Can you guess what it is? Wawona.
3: The Wawona Road was built in a really record amount of time. It was started in December of 1874 and completed in April of 1875. My name is Yanyan Chan, and I work in Yosemite National Park as a park ranger.
0: She's an interpretive ranger, which means that she does a bunch of research and creates natural and cultural history programs. And people who visit the parks can learn from them. I talked to her about the Chinese Americans and Chinese immigrants who helped build the initial infrastructure of Yosemite. This was before it became a national park.
3: And the reason why it was built so fast was because there were two other stage wagon roads that entered Yosemite Valley in the summer of 1874.
0: She's talking about the southern route into Yosemite Valley, 23 miles of road built by hand in just four months. And
3: so if they hadn't built that road in the winter, the hotel down in the south would have lost all tourism to the other areas where people were entering the park because they had a stage wagon road. So starting December, they hired 50 Chinese to start work on the road. And then that group grew to about 300 Chinese workers. And, you know, not every day was snowy, but you get up into the elevation of like 6,000 feet, 7,000 feet. And so there was probably snowstorms that they had to battle through. And from what I'd heard, a lot of these construction projects, the Chinese would camp wherever they stopped work that day. So they didn't go back to a nice, lodging area. They just kept moving along the road as they were working.
0: So these aren't just like the normal roads we take into the park today. They're wagon roads. But without them, the valley wouldn't be what it is today. So before
3: roads, people would either hike, which was not very common, but John Muir apparently hiked all the way to Yosemite, um, or they traveled on horseback. So it was a very you know, uncomfortable, long experience and journey to get to see Yosemite Valley. So learning about the Chinese history in the park was a really welcome surprise because I had not thought about
0: the Chinese having a role in our national parks until I did this research. Yan Yan wants to know more about these workers who have been basically erased from our national parks history. She learns how they constructed roads, how they worked in hotels and restaurants, There's even a nearby town called Chinese Camp. And then she comes across a man named Tai Sing. I started
3: looking into his background and um, I discovered in another book that there was a picture of him in his white apron standing amongst 19 men who were sitting at a dining table. And that's when I was just like, wow, it it became more real when I saw a picture of him, this black and white picture. And Tai Sing has this great smile. Not, you know, open, broad smile showing his teeth, but it was like this really, like, he was just a happy person standing there amongst all these men that were dressed really nicely. And um, they're sitting around these long tables and there's um, linen and there's silverware. And at the head of the table is the first
0: director of the National Park Service, Stephen Mather. And this group of suits at a table that Tai Singh is the chef for was called the Mather Mountain Party there were a bunch of big-deal politicians who visited Yosemite back in 1915. At the time Tising is photographed with the Mather Mountain Party, he's already a part of the U.S. Geological Survey, a well-respected employee. He's invented all sorts of ways to make incredible food and preserve it in the backcountry.
3: Yeah, they had to, every morning, soak newspaper in the cold streams and wrap the meat in it and let the air and the wind... evaporation keep the meat cold he also brought cantaloupe and he had a sourdough starter that was what he made um hot breads every evening for dinner and he could make incredible pies and other pastries
0: ty is an adored member of usgs for 30 years like they name a mountain peak after him adored
3: it's um a pretty tall granite peak and from the top of singh peak you can look across At all these high mountain ranges all around you, you can see Yosemite's Half Dome. You can see um, the Minarets, which is outside the park towards Mammoth Lakes. It's this 360 panorama of the mountains around the eastern, southeastern part of Yosemite. Ty dies in
0: 1918 in a backcountry accident. And after his death, his legacy almost disappears. But in 2013... Yen Yan, with the help of the Chinese Historical Society, starts an annual campout for the AAPI community. And the whole goal is to celebrate Chinese history at Yosemite. And the most important part of the campout is a hike up to the top of Sing Peak. And in building this experience for other people, to feel connected to their roots and to Yosemite, Yen Yan starts to feel more connected.
3: Um, most of my relatives are in Hong Kong, and there's a few in Singapore. and but for the majority of my life, I don't have very many aunties or uncles or cousins here in the u s. And so what was really neat about these pilgrimages is they they we have a gathering in Wawona and in a, a nice evening dinner where we have a big potluck. and people are staying in these cabins together in Wawona. and it was like this big community, this family, and I had all these aunties <laughs> and they were all like, you know, feeding me Chinese food and just, you know, taking care of me. And it was just really neat to also connect with this country's history and to feel pride in the fact that in Yosemite we have um, these contributions from Chinese Americans that, you know, that we think it's, it's really important to share this with the public and also among the Asian American community.
0: Why is it important to you to preserve that?
3: Well, I think there needs to be, you know, great understanding about the role and the contributions of um, immigrants to this country. And I think also the struggles that they went through. And hopefully it will help us to realize, you know, we don't want to repeat, you know, some of the things that happened in our past.
0: By the Wawona entrance to Yosemite Park, there's an old structure. It's called the Chinese Laundry Building because over 100 years ago, it was a laundry building. Then it turned into a wagon repair shop. Right now, there's work equipment in there. It's basically like storage. But Yen Yan is working on restoring the laundry building back to its original state to make it into a museum, a museum of Chinese history at Yosemite with photos of people like Tai Sing, It'll be a place where more Americans can meet the people who built Yosemite, the founders who look a little more like us. driving through this like, forest-like part of the park, and we're 24 miles away from Yosemite Valley. And after going around in literal hilly circles, we finally get to the normal people entrance to Yosemite. Hi, how's it going? Hi. Yes, we'll take one. Thank you, and then do you need to see it up close? Yeah, I saw it. You saw it? And I totally thought that all the parks were gonna be so white but we've seen two rangers of color so far and I decide nothing. Not even my fear of cars was going to keep us from making our way into that granite walled valley. Oh wow. Wow. It starts to change pretty drastically. (laughs) Wow. The waterfall. Wow. Oh
3: my God. Wait, pull over. Yeah, I'm
0: going to pull over because we can't just Oh my wow. God. And there's people in Shalvar kameez and full Pakistani outfit right in front of me. What are the odds? I mean, I want to say that I feel more at home, more welcome where I stand, because there are actual Pakistani people standing right next to me, but that's kind of a lie. I am excited, but I'm also embarrassed. Like, why are you dressed like that? You aren't doing nature American enough. <laughs> I think of myself as well-spoken, erudite even. But when it comes to nature, I am so much in awe that I just like turn into a salty sailor or something. Whoa, Jonathan, it's fucking gorgeous. The afternoon sun is shining on the valley, right over Half Dome, and waterfall after waterfall is cascading down steep granite cliffs. So we get out of the car, we take a picture. Remember how I told you I was obsessed with this 12-hour documentary on the park? So there's this guy in it, Shelton Johnson. He's, like, in almost every episode. And I was like, holy shit, a black park ranger? I have to talk to him. How's it going? Yes, Misha and Jonathan. Nice to Nice to meet you. So Shelton meets us in front of the visitor center. And I'm starstruck. He starts moving towards us with long strides, a bag slung over one shoulder, and his shoes are so shiny. But
1: my father was a sergeant in the army. Yeah. In the infantry. Uh huh. Yeah. So guess what I had to do as a childhood chore? <laughs> Polish them. Polish his boots and my own. So it's just in my head, <laughs> thou shalt not leave the house, representing the family, without shiny shoes. That's actually one of my nicknames. Shiny here shoes. Here, shiny shoes.
0: Shelton is also an interpretive ranger, just like Annie Chan. He's also a poet, author, and musician. He's literally a walking encyclopedia about Yosemite and the national parks. But what he's really known for, like what he's famous for, is telling people about the history of buffalo soldiers at Yosemite. Okay, so he has this weekly audio series for the parks, and it's called A Buffalo Soldier Speaks. And in it, Shelton inhabits a flute-playing member of the 9th Cavalry. A semi-fictional character named Sergeant Bowman.
1: This is Sergeant Bowman. You know, I've been talking to you about being here in Yosemite. You know, when I I, I found out that, uh, you know, Yosemite is something something new, it's something different. Uh, It's a national park. I didn't really know what that was until we got here.
0: There aren't a lot of books about the Buffalo Soldiers. And there were even fewer when Shelton started creating his program almost 20 years ago.
1: I should have gone to Berkeley or Stanford and actually entered a PhD program Mm -hmm. because everything that I was doing was primary research. So it was old newspapers, old correspondence, civilian correspondence, photographs. It was all primary documentation.
0: I have to say, listening to Sergeant Bowman is way more poetic and more insightful than probably any dissertation on the planet.
1: And in my mind, a national park is something so pretty you want to you wanna put it in your pocket, you want to take it home with you. But taking any bit of Yosemite home with you is illegal.
0: The Buffalo Soldiers only work in Yosemite for a short period. And they're essentially wilderness rangers. They're supposed to enforce a brand new idea.
1: This is taking place during the time of Manifest Destiny. And Americans still have this very much an inquisitive mindset towards the land. And so as John Muir put it, You take on a business person, he would have said businessman, you know, there's other issues. (laughs) That's another program, right? Uh, If you take a businessman and put him into a forest in Yosemite or Yellowstone, they would just see bored feet. They'd see timber. They'd see this, they have this acquisitive, extractive mindset in terms of how they perceive the land. When you show them game, that's what they would see. They wouldn't just see an elk or hear a mule deer. They would see something that you would hunt. And it was just our luck. Troop K's luck, 9th Cavalry luck, to show up in Yosemite and have to tell all those people that what they've been brought up to believe was right, was now wrong. Now that ain't easy duty.
0: I think the question I have is like, in your research, did you come upon any instances where any of the 9th Cavalry members were um, hurt or treated badly, or like if there's any documentation?
1: There's, the, 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 there's no. It doesn't need to be. It, it's, it's The thing to keep in mind, in terms of race relations in, in America, right around 1900 was the worst of times. And an African-American historian by the name of Rayford Logan became famous within historical circles for coining the phrase the Nader," And the Nader N-A-I-D-I-R, refers to the lowest point in African-American history up to that date. And so he, he pinpointed that year, that specific, like, what was the year that was literally the lowest point in terms of how African-Americans perceived themselves and how society, white society, how did they perceive African-Americans and so the mindset was of, among Rayford Logan that 1901 was that year. The Buffalo Soldiers were here in 1899, 1903 and 1904. So African-Americans, mostly from the South, were enforcing law and order on Euro-Americans during the, literally the worst time that you could ever expect to do that.
0: So do you think in that situation where if somebody, if like a Euro-American or a white person comes in and, you know, one of the 9th Cavalry members says like, sir, can you please give up your arms? And the person resists in that situation, are you saying that because they were part of the military, they felt like they had the power to enforce?
1: They didn't feel like it. They did. Yeah. And they knew it. That's Regardless what I'm of race. Regardless of race. Like I said, they were, they were men who knew they were men. And they were combat veterans. And they never were out on patrol by themselves. So you would have a sergeant, a corporal, and a private, or a sergeant, a corporal, two privates. And so they have backup. So think of it this way, five combat veterans from the Philippine insurrection. Now in Yosemite, from their point of view, this is a picnic. This is a walk in the park. (laughs) White ain't the color they, the people need to pay heed to. The color ain't brown either, or black the color they need to pay heed to are the yellow of my stripes, that means I'm a sergeant, is the blue of that shirt that I'm wearing. If they don't quite make that out, they need to see the color of that carbine I got wrapped around my shoulders. In 1866, four different regiments of, of, two of of cavalry and two of infantry were created. The Ninth Regiment of Cavalry, the 10th Regiment of Cavalry, and then the 24th Regiments of Infantry, and the 25th Regiments of Infantry. So those four groups, two of Cavalry, two of Infantry, were African-American. And they became known as the Buffalo Soldiers simply because of their involvement, engagement with indigenous people during the Indian Wars. So this would have been post-Civil War from beyond 1866 and then moving forward in time. And the name came about because when their Plains Indian antagonists, this would be like the Lakota, Oglala, uh, Dakota, Nakota Sioux, the Cheyenne, when they they, uh, saw these soldiers, they noticed that the hair on their head was just like the matted cushion between the horns of the bison. And because the bison is sacred to Plains Indian cultures in general, that was perceived by these African-Americans as a compliment. They were used to getting a lot of non-complimentary things about them, but that was a compliment.
0: Shelton takes us from the visitor center to a nearby meadow. So what is Cook's Meadow?
1: Uh, It's a meadow named for someone named Cook.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We dodge pedestrians. Uh, On the walkway, a bicyclist stops dead in front of us and says to Shelton, without explanation, you're the guy, right? I don't remember what I saw you in, but that's you, right? Right looks like I'm not the only Parks nerd fangirling over Shelton. He's a total celebrity in Yosemite. I'm
1: what she did. Uh, but, um, hello, folks. Hello, how are you? I'm doing fine. How are you? Good. Good. I think whenever I see African-Americans, I make a point of saying hi. The relationship's different because a lot of uh, African-Americans, when they see someone in uniform, they just think cop. The uniform pushes them away. And instead, they could be going, wow, a black ranger. That's so cool.
0: We walk over to Cook's Meadow, right in the middle of Yosemite Valley.
1: I've devoted my life to this work because if not me, then, then who? Who would else be doing it? I mean, I'm, the African-American ranger that was before me that told this story was Althea Roberson. Before Althea, as far as I know, it was a man by the name of Kenneth Noel. And so it was like literally a baton being passed from one to the other. So Althea handed me the baton. She told me about the story. And then I built on it. You know, you're given something, then you, then you have the responsibility of adding to it. And so I realized that we'll make a story that was forgotten, not just known in the park, but known around the world. I want African-Americans to feel that parks belong to them. And the story is the tether. It's the umbilical cord that ties African-Americans to the ancestors. And that's why I tell this story. And that's why I've still been here, because I'm, I, I want to hand off the baton But there's no one behind me and so for me bringing that story back is it's just like a plant that's never had roots finally being able to touch the earth and and be able to create a foundation for itself Mm. as an african-american working for the parks not seeing myself reflected in in, in the staff not seeing myself reflected in the visitors to a great degree um, it felt like you're rudderless it felt culturally speaking that you were adrift even though you felt at home at the same time because it was so beautiful. But finding that story gave me an anchor. You know, I was no longer afloat and adrift. I felt, I, wow, this, is, this belongs to me as much as anyone else. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I'm still here. Because I'm home. Oh. <laughs> you really gave it to us. <laughs> because I'm home, that's why I'm here. This place makes me feel happy.
0: we're gonna hike today um we're gonna do a really hard hike the upper yosemite falls i don't know if we're gonna make it all the way to the top or if we're gonna do it until columbia rock jonathan doubts me but I have faith. It's because I was like a baby yesterday on our baby hike. Ooh, Wawona campground. Nobody is in Wawona campground and I have just veered off the road. (laughs) Looking for parking in Yosemite is worse than looking for parking in LA. But we find a spot and get ready for the hike. The Upper Yosemite Falls Trail is 7.6 miles round trip. We've got water, we've got bars, apples, sandwich stuff. And to protect my old lady knees, I have REI hiking poles, my very own Nimbus 2000. I'm gonna take my slow ass time with the trekking poles. If anyone's behind me, like, I'm not gonna let someone tailgating stress me out into falling to my death or fucking up my knee again. The hike is basically all uphill, We zigzag our way up, and up, and up, and up, and up, and up. Harvest cutting this tape, yes, I am weak sauce. No shame. But the view? Oh my god, holy shit. We see Half Dome. We see all the meadows, all the pine trees. The the sky is a clear blue. The mist in the air feels like my very own private facial. It's also so nice after working up a sweat. And then we round the corner. And we see the Yosemite Falls. Oh my gosh. <laughs> ah, I slip like about a million times. Okay, there's like spindly shit. It's kind of hard not to be distracted by how gorgeous the waterfalls are. Like, how do people hike this without dying? Wet and slippery. When we arrive at the base of the waterfall, I just have to stop. I'm not stoned, but if I were, I'd have sat there for hours. Whoa, oh my God. The water cascades down the rocks in slow motion. It turns me from a salty sailor to Keanu Reeves. Dude, whoa. There are literally no words for it. Well, maybe two. Dude. When I think about John Muir, which clearly I have been, I think about this picture of him standing at the top of Glacier Point with Teddy Roosevelt, his beard blowing in the wind. That was 1903. And in the background of that picture is this waterfall. You know how I said before that Yosemite is associated with seven tribes? The Southern Sierra Miwok Nation, the Bishop Paiute Tribe, Bridgeport Indian Colony, Mono Lake Kozetica, North Fork Rancheria of Mono Indians of California, Picayune Rancheria of the Chukchansi Indians, and the Tuolumne Band of Miwok Indians. So for nearly 4,000 years, Native people have called this land home. But in 1851, a bunch of Euro-American gold miners move here. Settlers. They call themselves the Mariposa Battalion. And when I say gold miner, you're probably thinking they're just there mining gold, right? No. They were burning villages, destroying food supplies, murdering women and children, colonizing, committing genocide, By the time John Muir comes along in 1868, he is stepping on hallowed ground ravaged by war and racism. He writes in his 1901 book, Our National Parks, as to Indians, most of them are dead or civilized into useless innocence. The man has no idea what he's talking about. He shows more compassion and empathy to the plants and animals in the area. He writes natives out of the history of Yosemite completely. Or at least he tries to. These days, a lot of people are talking about canceling John Muir. It's a whole debate. I mean, John Muir is a racist, but without him, there wouldn't be a Yosemite National Park. How do I reconcile that?
2: I don't need to reconcile it. I I don't think it's important to reconcile someone like him or Teddy Roosevelt. I'm, I'm not too interested in exploring their complex humanity.
0: David Troyer is a writer and member of the Ojibwe of northern Minnesota. His book, The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee, is about how indigenous culture and civilization is still very much alive in America. And you need to go read it right now, because I couldn't put it
2: down. On one hand, I'm really grateful for our national parks. I'm grateful they exist. Um, If you've been to Niagara Falls, you can see what happens when there isn't a park to protect the land around that thing. You know, if Niagara Falls were a park, we wouldn't have as many strip clubs, you know, and uh, we wouldn't have as many like, like haunted houses. You know, I love those, but <laughs> I don't need that on the lip of Niagara Falls, you know? Yeah. And so I'm, I'm very grateful on personally, on one hand, um, that Muir and more pointedly Teddy Roosevelt were incorrigible racists um, doesn't need to be reconciled. You know, what do they say that, you know, if you give like, you know, a hundred monkeys typewriters and they type forever, someone will eventually by the law of averages, write a Shakespeare play. (laughs) Right. You've heard that before, you know?
4: No. Yeah. It's just,
2: it's just like, Given an eternity, you know, the random sequence of letters will coalesce. They'll will, will, will pop out a Shakespeare play. Not on purpose. <laughs> It'll just happen. So, like, you know, you give a couple racists, like, you know, enough time, and they might have a good idea here and there. But it doesn't need to be reconciled in my mind. Well, but
0: what about the fact that these people are also the very people who have trails and monuments and parks named after them?
2: Hey, you know this this uh, this country is in a monument toppling mood. <laughs> so I'm not too worried about it. <laughs> and uh, but here's the thing, you know what John Muir meant by conservation was different from what we might mean by it, you know. And what Teddy Roosevelt thought of his conservation was, you know, protecting the park so he could go there and blow everything alive away into smithereens when he went to yellowstone for the first time he was so butthurt that he didn't get to kill every animal he saw he was really mad and they had to soothe him and like calm him down and take him on some side trips outside the park so he could just shoot things (laughs) i'm serious so even his idea of conservation was different than muir's you know but yeah um I I wouldn't go so far as to say that that conservation is a uniquely Native concept, but it is a concept that we share. It is a concept that we we acknowledge. And many of us, not all of us, because again, you know, we're frail, we're human, but, you know, many of us try to live by. You know, the tribes in what's now Yosemite Valley, uh, Miwok among them, had been shaping those forests for centuries to encourage acorn growth which was a staple food source of theirs so we've been shaping this landscape for for millennia
0: oh I hate this granite shit hate it hate it you want to pass me Jonathan? By the way, I'm still hiking. I ate a little sandwich, drank some water, and got back to it. If I'm like, fuck this, Jonathan, I'm sorry, I'm turning back. You have to respect it. Okay, thank you. And while I'm out here, one slip away from my death, I keep thinking about John Muir. How his name is synonymous with the park. Like, why is his name the one that's synonymous with Yosemite? He's like on California's commemorative quarter looking up at, guess what, Half Dome. I mean, he did do a lot to preserve Yosemite, but you know who did more? The people who lived here for at least 4,000 years before him. In 2015, the national parks as we know them are about to turn 100 years old, and this very fancy organization called the American Association of Geographers put together a summit. And the topic of the summit is... Basically, John Muir's legacy. They invite Carolyn Finney, a cultural geographer.
1: Okay, so Carolyn Finney, and we're going to put up Finney Finney, 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 Finney. We're going to put up the old picture. Yes. Okay. Hold
4: on. Yeah. Hi. My name is uh, Carolyn Finney.
0: You know, some
4: people say Dr. Finney.
0: You know, got that little PhD after my name. Carolyn's book, "Black Faces, White Spaces," had just come out. It's an investigation into systemic racism in the outdoors. And it's huge.
4: The president of the um, conference that year asked about eight of us geographers to sit on the plenary. And the question he asked all of us to consider, to present on was, is John Muir still relevant? And I thought, oh, he asked me to be, I said, okay. And I was told that we had 10 minutes.
0: In one of his books, A Thousand Mile Walk to the Gulf, Muir talks about Black Americans using extremely derogatory language. And Carolyn is like, well, I want a chance to respond. So instead of doing something super academic, she decides she's going to talk directly to John Muir.
4: I imagined myself in conversation with him. And I I wrote up a funny scene. I made it kind of funny. I was living in Kentucky, but I was inviting him over and giving him green tea. And he was kind of stunned to see me and that I was sitting on this National Parks Advisory Board as the only black person and like what's happening right now. But he was polite. Take a deep breath, Mr. Muir. Close your eyes and see yourself in your beloved Yosemite. Find your center, my wilderness brother, and let me share with you a few thoughts. I would tell him stories of my parents and the land they cared for deeply. I would tell him that I've never been to Muir Woods, the steam rising from his green tea could not hide a surprise. But I do have a fondness for the baobab tree and the cherry blossom tree. I would tell him that I've gone to Yosemite where I have met a black park ranger who was holding it down with his heart and music from his flute. I would tell him about the city and the roads that grew from concrete even when no one else cared. I would leave out Tupac because that would confuse him and give him too much info at one time.
1: <laughs>
4: I would tell him that the wilderness is not only those vast natural expanses where we can see, but they are also those places vast and unfamiliar that many of us occupy in our daily lives. And they are worthy of preservation and our care the stories, the natures, the lives that he did not know how to know. No worry, Mr. Muir. I've got your back, even if you don't have mine. And at the end, I look at the audience and say, the answer to that question for me, is John Muir still relevant? It's not whether he is relevant or not, is that he becomes relevant on my terms, right? That's what it is. I get to choose what they, it's not that he's irrelevant, you know, or not, it's like that. I, I want to understand that as equally as I, I come into the story as the way that I understand my own experience as a Black person, as a woman, as a human being here on this planet. Of course, his point of view has influenced me whether I like it or not. You know, actually, that's almost inconsequential about whether I like it or not. It's just how I understand that. And where am I in that story?
0: It makes news all these headlines about John Muir being a racist. And then Carolyn gets a call from John Muir's great, great grandson.
4: He was getting all so many calls from the media on his phone. He he said he was so overwhelmed. He thought something had happened to a member of his family. He was getting so many phone calls. And I interrupted him and said, that's because something did happen to a member of your family. You know, I know he's a figure from the past, but he has a legacy in the present. And that We can hold those differences in a way that are respectful and are in service to a larger collective intention that we both want to be in service to, right? And I think that's part of the challenge is that I understand people don't like to look at things that are hard to look at, right? But that's part of who we are as human beings. And that's often where we learn the most about who we can be as human beings. So for me, it's like we got to get better at holding that. So it is a making visible, right? What's always been there.
0: That last thing that Carolyn said, where am I in this story? Yeah, where is she in the story? Where are the Buffalo soldiers and the Chinese immigrants? Where are the Miwoks and the Paiutes? and the natives who have been living here for thousands of years. Where am I? And can anyone tell an honest story of our national parks without including all of us? I'm someone who came here as an immigrant, and I had a lot of fears, like tons of fears. I was afraid of people. I was afraid of biking. I was afraid of swimming. I was afraid of the outdoors. I was afraid of going into an Abercrombie & Fitch store. <laughs> like, And I think that through a lot of that, I I thought that the way to get through it was to, like, power through or avoid it entirely. And I think neither one of those tactics actually worked. Ooh, chipmunk? Squirrel. Squirrel, right? Fat squirrel. Fat squirrel. After hours of hiking and my high-key complaining, we are still not at the top of Yosemite Falls. And Jonathan and I continue going up, 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 and up. The top isn't all the way at the top of that fall, is it? It is? What? There's so much still to hike. How are you guys doing? (laughs) Hi, good. Good. Did you go all the way to the top? Uh, Oh, you're heading up? Are you gonna do it? it. (laughs) How about you? I mean, I don't know. I'm kind of a scaredy cat, but I'm going to try. I'm going to take it one step at a time. <laughs> yeah. People coming down from the top, though, are a steady stream of information. Ah. How was it? It's beautiful. I went to
2: the viewpoint where I could see it coming down. Does it get
0: more precarious than this?
2: No. Oh, little, great. No, no, no. Is it really
0: scary? They have like an iron rail built in. So oh, they do? OK, you can hold on to something. Yeah. Yes. OK. I guess you did. did you guys see a bear? Uh, we someone heard else someone we Oh, but you uh, didn't, guys, you guys didn't see... I think it was right around that corner, actually. Oh, really? It's yeah, it's, he it looked know. hungry. He didn't know. No, you fine. <laughs> fine. We're fine. No. No, 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 no. Why? Why on my first hike at my first park on this trip? Why, nature, why? But admit it. You knew there was gonna be a bear, didn't you? There wouldn't be a podcast without a bear. And a mysterious death in a national park. Just kidding. I was in Arizona last summer, driving there, actually, and had a panic attack. Maybe the worst I've ever had. When it happened, I called my dad, and my dad said something that calmed me. You know how with fear, people always say, the only way out is through? What my dad said that day was, the only way out might be through, but you don't have to make it all the way through today. So I don't. I get my car towed all the way back to L.A. I board a bus and let someone else drive me to Arizona. Where? Wait, where is it? Uh-huh. So there's
2: kind of that little cliff uh-huh. Remember that green patch is.
0: Oh, he's a brown bear. Yeah. Well, I always expect black bears to be black. You guys see him? Oh, wow. He's coming down fast. Oh, he's coming down really fast. Yeah, he's coming down really fast. I feel like we should go. I want to go back, right? I don't want to go up there. He's, like, literally fucking sprinting. No, these people can get mauled. I'm I'm going back! (laughs) You know, for me, and for a lot of other people, being out in nature is hard. It brings out all kinds of fear. The physical kind, the sweaty palms, the shallow breathing, the racing thoughts, the fast and loud heartbeat, the fear of hurting ourselves, or worse, dying. There's the emotional kind, the fear of looking like we don't know what we're doing, of being noticed for not knowing what we're doing. And there's the historical kind, the bloodshed that took place on the land we're walking through, the blood of people who look like us. And when all these fears start to bubble up, it's really, really hard to remember cliches like the only way out is through. When that fear is with you, in you, it feels impossible to overcome it in one grand moment. And that's the thing about nature, right? You can't overcome it in one grand moment. If you hike all the way to the top, you must hike back down. If you run into a bear and you scare her off, she still might come back around. There might always be a bear around the corner. Being in nature is the act of living with fear, of listening to it. Oh, oh God. It's on the way down, the tired steps away from the bear, from the stunning waterfalls. Yeah, I'm I'm like, I'm done. Like, my legs are so tired, I can't control them. (laughs) you know. That I start to move at the pace of my fears, to listen to them, to what they're telling me about myself, about the nature all around me, and about this country that I call mine. There's this one other thing my dad said to me that day in Arizona. He said, the hardest person to get to know is yourself. Because we all have this version of ourselves that we want to be. And looking in the mirror, seeing ourselves for who we are, it means accepting who we are not, how far away we are from who we want to be. Yosemite is just the first of eight parks. And in going to these beautiful places, I'm going to try to tell a new story of our American parks. I mean, it's actually the oldest story of this land, but it's new to me as an immigrant. And it might be new to you, too. It's not going to be perfect. It's not even going to be complete. But I will hold up a mirror to myself, to these parks, and to our country, to what it means to be an American. Hello, Nature, from REI Co-op Studios, is brought to you by Subaru. It's produced by Dust Light Productions. I'm your host and executive producer, Misha Youssef. Our executive editor is Arwen Nix. Jonathan Shiflet is the senior producer. Elizabeth Nakano is the producer. Francesca Diaz is assistant producer. Ariana Garble provided additional production help. This episode was written by Jonathan Shiflet, me, and Arwen Nix. It was sound designed by Jonathan Shiflet. The voice of John Muir was Joe Wack, and the voice of the documentary was Gordon Henderson. Valentino Rivera is the senior engineer. Carly Bond is the composer. Elizabeth Goodspeed is our art director and designer, and did our artwork for the series. The illustrations on the artwork are by Joshua Ariza. Special thanks to Rachel Garcia, our Development and Operations Coordinator at Dustlight, and Apprentice Matthew Lai. From REI Co-op Studios, executive producers are Chelsea Davis, Joe Crosby, and Paolo Matola. Kirsa Berg is the podcast production intern.